Dan Wallach is a professor in the departments of computer science and electrical and computer engineering and a Rice Scholar at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. On September 13, 2016, he testified before the U.S. House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology for a hearing entitled, Protecting the 2016 Elections from Cyber and Voting Machine Attacks. My main message for you here today is that our election systems face credible cyber threats from our nation state adversaries. And it's prudent to adopt contingency plans before November to mitigate these threats. Professor Wallach is one of the nation's foremost experts in researching electronic voting systems. During his testimony, he addressed the real concerns posed by Russian hacking of DNC emails, and also pinpointed where hacking might occur in the presidential election that at that time was less than two months away. I believe my top concern is the voter registration systems because they are generally online. And if it's online, it's accessible from the internet. And if it's accessible from the internet, it's accessible from our nation state adversaries. If you can either selectively or entirely delete people who you'd rather not vote, the current provisional voting system can't really scale to support a large number of voters who are filling out affidavits and following that process. Dan suggested we invest more in computer backups and be prepared to restore data from those backups if the original voter registration lists became compromised or corrupted. Then there was the second area of vulnerability. Dan posed the question, can our adversaries get malware into our voting machines themselves? He was referring to electronic voting machines at polling stations. His solution? We must replace our aging electronic voting machines with either next-generation optical scan systems or new touchscreen systems, both of which would have paper trails for subsequent auditing if there were allegations of fraud or tampering so that it's much more difficult for outside actors to manipulate. Dan is not a fan of the electronic voting machines we use in our elections, but at the time of the hearing where replacing the machines was not an option, his recommendation to Congress was for aggressive contingency planning in case it became evident that the machines were tampered with or disabled. This podcast is being recorded in May 2017, six months after the last U.S. presidential election. While a day doesn't go by without a news story about Russian influences on the election, Dan Wallach's worst fears about a direct hacking of the election seem to have gone unrealized. Experts generally agree that the votes cast weren't tampered with and that Donald Trump, while losing the popular vote, did in fact win the Electoral College and was rightfully inaugurated in January of this year as the 45th President of the United States. At one point in the hearing before Congress in September 2016, Dan addressed the issue that was most of interest to me in regards to the future of online voting. As a quick note, our immediate future should not include internet voting. And while Dan acknowledged that someday internet voting would definitely happen, he emphatically tried to shut down discussion of it for now. It's hard enough to protect the online systems that we already have. Moving additional voters online increases the risks. Dan correctly and articulately described the enormous risks the country faced from hacking and based his conclusions on internet voting upon those risks. But what about the risk of an apathetic or disillusioned electorate, almost half of which would stay home on election day less than two months after Dan delivered his testimony? 
Was it possible or even worthy of consideration that the legitimacy of the election would be more threatened by an arcane electoral system and historically low voter turnout than it could have been by hacking? You're listening to Predicting Our Future. I'm Andrew Weinrich. This podcast explores industries that might be ripe for massive disruption, as well as some of the most exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs to consider. This is the second episode in a three-part series examining online voting and whether we can expect to see voting over the internet in future American elections. In the last episode, I discussed how voting in America is fundamentally broken and whether online voting might help fix it. In this episode, I'll speak with academics about the benefits and risks of online voting and then explore what other opportunities might follow if online voting were to be introduced throughout the United States. This podcast is brought to you by SaneBox. If your email is anything like mine, you have more emails than you can read. I recently learned about a company that takes out the manual organizing of your inbox. It's called SaneBox. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all the trivial stuff into a different folder. So the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. They also have this feature called the black hole where you can relegate a sender's messages to obscurity. Here's a deal they're offering to my listeners. Visit SaneBox.com forward slash future. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X.com forward slash future. And they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of their two-week free trial. I was really interested in talking with Dan Wallach after reading his testimony. There were two areas I wanted to explore with him. The first had to do with voter turnout, and the second related to how we might technically solve some of his concerns about the vulnerabilities of online voting. At the outset, it's worth pointing out that Dan couldn't point to any instance of election fraud in modern times in the United States. Of the two examples he did cite of election fraud, one in Mexico and one in the Ukraine, the former fraud occurred with paper ballots. Typically, when you hear a technologist speak about the requirements for building any system, they begin by articulating all of the objectives that the system is being designed to affect. If you build a social network, you don't just describe the requirements as allowing users to functionally create a profile and interact with others. You would actually describe your objectives for the number of subscribers you hoped your system would register and attach quantitative metrics to the types and frequencies of their interactions. For Dan's testimony, I imagine he was only asked about mitigating threats to voting systems. So nowhere in his testimony were the objectives of any system that might be designed to improve the voting process. I asked him about what he saw as the purpose of these voting systems, namely, whether it was simply to make sure that every vote was counted accurately, or that we also designed a system where the maximum number of people voted. He acknowledged the value of an interested electorate and was adamant that online voting was not the only way to achieve it. In the Dutch election just a couple days ago, they had over 80% turnout and they voted on paper. So voter turnout is a, is, a, is, a, is a great thing to have. And achieving high voter turnout has relatively little to do with the technology that you're using. Achieving high voter turnout can be done in many different ways. Um, the way that most overseas and military voters vote today actually is that you can download a blank ballot, print it, and then mail it back. So that way you, ha you have the, the postal mail as only for one direction rather than both directions. So there are other solutions besides full online voting. Dan made clear he recognized the benefit of having all 
interested voters participate in an election, although he suggested that making turnout of all voters a primary objective for a voting system might not be all that desirable. A political scientist who's a colleague of mine likes to, to, to make the following quip, which is, in order to vote, every voter has to have something that they all have in common. And that something is that they've decided who they want to vote for. And if you push to increase voter turnout, you're increasingly getting people who have, who have less strong opinions about who they're voting for. And at the limit, you're getting people walking into the polling place with no idea who they're voting for. So be careful what you ask for when you're trying to increase voter turnout. As I listened to Dan speak, I recalled his testimony before Congress and his focus on securing the machines at the polling stations. If you're someone who doesn't see the benefits in everyone voting, your willingness to absorb any risk of fraud or hacking has to be dramatically reduced. But every critical system has risks. There is the risk that a nuclear power plant will melt down. There is the risk that our reservoirs will be poisoned. We assess the design risk of power plants and the risks inherent in the delivery of our water against the benefits associated with our need for electricity and our need for potable water. If you don't need electricity, you won't design a nuclear power plant. And similarly, if you don't believe increasing voter turnout from 54% of the electorate to 75% of the electorate is critical to restoring faith in American participatory democracy, you're not going to be particularly motivated to use technology along the lines of internet voting to increase voter participation. Dan did not believe there was ample evidence to support a correlation between internet voting and increased turnout, and it seemed his motivation to solve the technology challenges he presented to me with internet voting reflected in part his belief that they weren't worth solving. I still think internet voting is something that we as scientists and engineers do not know how to build in a way that would meet any useful requirements. Internet voting is far too vulnerable, specifically to denial of service attacks. I would find it very unacceptable for us to attempt internet voting with today's internet and today's computers. Um, I can tell you how we would do it for building better electronic voting systems in person. That's what I've spent years of my life working on. I was surprised he placed such an emphasis around the danger of a distributed denial of service attack, or DDoS for short. A DDoS attack is when a group of computers floods a particular website with so much traffic that it crashes and is rendered unavailable for legitimate users. This type of attack has been a fairly frequent occurrence on the internet for some time, and instances of DDoS attacks are getting more common as well as more sophisticated every year. But not every website is equally vulnerable, or rather, as equally ill-prepared to defend against them. I mean, denial of service attacks preclude availability for a period of time, not forever. If the internet's down, we've got, for a prolonged period of time, we've got bigger problems than whether we can vote, right? We can't access our banking. We could, wh why is that a deal killer? Well, the internet being down is precisely an attack that happened on an internet voting system used in a real election in Estonia. The allegation is that Russians attacked the Estonian voting system and took it offline. That is simply not acceptable for a U.S. election. The show must go on. I want to brainstorm with you here. Is that, is that the biggest vulnerability, the, the denial of service? I wouldn't say it's the biggest, but it's the easiest. It's the easiest thing for an attacker to go after. I wasn't familiar with the fact that there was a, um, a denial of service attack in the Estonian election. How long did that last for? 
I mean, I, I don't know all the technical details. There are some papers that have been written about it. Suffice to say that the internet is not robust enough to have elections when we have a specific deadline. You know, the second Tuesday in November, that evening, we want to know who won. And if I tell you, I'm sorry, the internet was down all day Tuesday and nobody was able to cast their votes, the U.S. Constitution isn't built to deal with that. But if we were to suffer a full-scale internet outage for a day, the economic consequences to this country would be so disastrous, it seems like it would rise to the level of an act of war. I mean, in the case of Estonia, you might say it's a blip, right? There are obviously fewer tier one connections into the country. It, it, I mean, and I'm trying to imagine what that would look like here, why you're more concerned about that for elections than you are for our banking system, why you're more concerned about that for elections than you are for our electric grid or for our you know, our access to ATM. Like, why is the standard for voting r rising to a level above all of our other critical infrastructure when it comes to availability of the internet? So it's an interesting question, but let me flip it around on you. W what benefit would an attacker have by knocking Google down for a day? You know, if I spent a day without Google, my life would go on. But if I have to vote on the second Tuesday in November and the voting server for my local county is offline, then my vote was denied to me. In the case of Google, there has been no wide scale knockout of Google. You probably couldn't because there's such redundancy and where they sit along the periphery of the internet. What you could have is knocking out of individuals access to Google. Also, Google's not a critical piece of our infrastructure. I still don't see why the standard for voting would rise above critical pieces of infrastructure that we rely upon to live, not Google, not Facebook. So first off, I, I should point out, Google is incredibly well engineered to defend itself against these sort of denial of service attacks. They have literally millions of computers in data centers around the world and they can route traffic around to protect one data center if another one gets knocked down. Precisely. Your local county clerk's office doesn't have that level of infrastructure. Your local county clerk's office has some modest backbone connection that can be completely overwhelmed. But haven't you just described the solution? I mean, if Google hosts this county's voting system and they host it in a way where they are hosting it on their millions of servers worldwide, isn't that in a solution to the DOS problem? I don't think Google is, a, is, is interested in being in the business of vote casting and tabulation for starters. And second off, let me uh, point to one of Google's uh, competitors in the space, Amazon. Just a couple weeks ago, all Amazon EC2 servers went down for like a day. Because of a typographical error. And because of that stupid typographical error, thousands of websites went offline for a day. A huge hunk of, of the internet backbone as we think of it today was gone and because of a typo. So first of all, not clear to me that Google doesn't want to get into the space. Google surveys is a form of voting, right? If Google said, yes, we want to do this, we could be persuaded to do this, to distribute it on our servers. And if there was the political will to say, we can't absorb a typographical error for a single day, but mail voting occurs over months, even for Amazon Web Services, we've never seen EC2 go down for months. And 
Um, and we know that Google has the redundancy and the distribution and the millions of servers to host this. Doesn't that address your, your denial of service concern? Even though Google might be able to absorb some amazing denial of service attacks, and by the way, I've spoken to the sort of Google, I know many of the Google engineers who would be responsible for keeping it up. And when you talk to them about denial of service attacks, they get nervous and they say, well, so far we have enough bandwidth to absorb it. But well, you know, the, the denial of service attackers are getting better and better all the time. So it's assuming that Google can absorb that attack is an assumption that's not necessarily warranted. That said, there's also the question of do you want to trust a huge American corporation with the machinery of American democracy. That, that's, that's a very important policy question that you're, that you're glazing over. You know, is Google beyond reproach? Well, not everybody would agree with that statement. I happen to trust Google with a lot of things. I trust it with my email and my calendar and all sorts of other things. But do I trust Google, a company in business to make money with protecting my democracy and ensuring that the, that the will of the people is preserved? Not necessarily. That shouldn't be something that we just give to Google because we don't think anybody else can handle it. It should be pointed out that all of our voting machines are already made by private companies. Any and all scenarios we are faced with involve trusting or testing the trustworthiness of whichever corporations supply our election machinery. Still, Dan was unconvinced that increased voter accessibility could translate to greater voter turnout. After Dan, I had the good fortune to interview another leading computer science authority on this topic. David Dill is the Donald E. Newth Professor in the School of Engineering and Professor of Computer Science at Stanford University and has been teaching there for 30 years. In about 2003, I became interested in the question of electronic voting. This was after the 2000 uh, Florida presidential election meltdown and funding was now available for new voting machines. And at one time I thought that was a great idea and then I started seeing people on the internet who seemed a bit paranoid about the voting machines. I started thinking about these voting machines using what I knew about computer science and I couldn't understand how one could make an electronic voting machine trustworthy without a paper ballot. I started asking around among people who had been working in the area longer, computer scientists, and in fact, nobody else had an answer to that question either. So I wrote a petition called the Resolution on Electronic Voting, which was signed ultimately by thousands of computer technologists, including many of the top computer scientists in the world, saying that we needed a paper audit trail, uh, really a paper ballot for uh, any voting technology that we had, so that you could go back and hand count the ballots to make sure the electronic totals were correct. David's vision for the future of voting involves using a system that would produce a reliable paper trail and the prioritization of regular audits. In your ideal world, what would the voting systems look like? Would there be no electronic machines? We'd be using computers all over the place, but we would be not trusting those computers. What I would use is the system that's most widely used in the U.S. now which is optical scan, and I would use precinct count optical scan, where the, the scanners are actually in the individual polling places. Voters mark a sort of multiple choice ballot by hand. They put the ballot into a scanner, which counts the votes then and there, and will reject the ballot 
if there's a mistake on it. Okay, that reduces voter errors, which is good for the accuracy of the election outcome. And then what I would do, and this is something we don't do uh, as well as we should in this country, is I would have careful so-called risk-limiting audits, very well-designed statistical audits. And so we would match the ballots, randomly selected ballots, with the scanned copies of the ballots to make sure they were scanned accurately, and then uh, publish the scanned ballots, which could be anonymized in various ways, so that anybody can do a re an electronic recount to make sure the vote totals are correct. The system like that is very difficult um, for anyone to mess with the election. So you'd have to be a large group of people to do that. What about online voting? Low voter participation is one of the worst problems we have in this country. And it's part of a larger problem of low civic engagement. Um, you not only want people to vote, you would like them to be better informed about public policy issues and the candidates. There's a level of apathy or perhaps helplessness among the population where they don't feel like their vote counts. Um, now, the reasons for low voter participation have been studied, and I don't think I've seen a fully satisfactory answer to it, but it's a complicated thing. Some voters will say, well, it's because voting is inconvenient or because I worked too hard and I wasn't available. But it doesn't seem that that's really the major problem. Um, when people have tried to make voting more convenient, for example, in a lot of the West Coast, going to extensive vote-by-mail systems, it hasn't significantly increased voter turnout. What I have seen a lot of is proposals for increasing voter turnout, very well-intended ones, including internet voting, which are not backed up by any empirical evidence that they'll work. On this point, I disagreed with David and told him so. What I struggle with is this is a relative balancing of risk-reward. And so I appreciate the risks you posed with electronic voting, although it's fairly difficult to prove the absence of something when much of it's in a black box. The real treasure here is is the transparency of an election, the confidence in the outcome that, in fact, it reflected the will of the people. I still wonder whether or not the benefit of solving this problem, which is to say accessibility translates to more votes, the social good is so worthy, is so beneficial to the country, would go so much further than the remote possibility of us changing an electoral system that it justifies risks associated with the confidence and transparency that you spoke about previously. If you want to weigh risk versus reward, you need to think about the rewards and you need to think about the risks. So what I've already argued is that the reward here is minimal. And that's based on looking at multiple efforts to make uh, voting easier, including tests of internet voting in Canada and Europe, where there were not significant differences in the voter turnout in those elections. So I think the rewards are minimal. So there it is. Leading computer science academics are deeply skeptical of internet voting and are actively campaigning against its utilization, not because theoretically they don't think it's a solvable problem, but because they don't think it's worth solving.
As I conducted research for this podcast, I found some evidence in the United States that internet voting can dramatically improve voter turnout. James Simmons is the VP of Elections at Everyone Counts, one of the worldwide leading hardware and software providers for voting. In 2016, Everyone Counts conducted the first instance of people voting for the President of the United States over the internet at any scale. They worked with the state of Alabama to allow Alabama service people stationed overseas to vote directly over the internet. Alabama worked with us to allow their military and overseas voters to vote essentially online using our platform. So a very small segment of the U.S. population did get to vote over the internet. So, so we can look at that segment because we understand the statistics behind that. Was that the first time any segment has voted over the internet? I would say yes, in the sense that it's the first time someone has logged into a web-based application, um, filled out their ballot, and clicked submit. There have been a number of cases of folks basically sending and receiving their ballot by, by email or, or filling it out and then uploading it into a like a, an SFTP site type thing. But in terms of truly engaging with a web application, yeah, this is the first time in U.S. public elections that that's happened. What was their percentage participation in prior elections and what was the percentage participation in this election? For the 2012 presidential election, their participation for that demographic was was just under 13 percent. Right. So it's hard for these folks to vote. I mean, getting a post, getting a mail ballot out to them, getting it back in time through international posts, especially some of the places that these folks are serving was a challenge for the demographic that we supported there. Uh, the 2016 saw an 84 percent turnout. So that group of people, military overseas folks, beat our national average by a pretty significant margin. Why Alabama? First of all, why doesn't this exist nationwide? Why didn't this past election cycle, did we not have that same opportunity? A lot of it is just sort of the willingness to be the first to try. And, and that's, that's, I think, the answer to your first question of why Alabama is they uh, recognize that, that they had this group of folks who, who were underserved in their ability to participate. And um, they, they chose to, to take a leap with us first to pilot it during their, their primaries, and then to, to go full bore in the general election, and they were the first to do so. Approximately 4,000 Alabama service people participated in the 2016 election. I was wondering if there was a single example of where internet voting could improve turnout by a few percentage points. Here, participation increased by over 70 percentage points. Alabama is not the only place that has tried internet voting. A number of countries have been experimenting with it. Canada has used online voting in past municipal elections, but the country has no immediate plans to roll out internet voting for federal elections. France used internet voting for national legislative elections in 2012 and for a primary in 2014, starting with eligible citizens living abroad, but then abandoned internet voting altogether out of fears of cybersecurity threats. Mexico was the first country in Latin America to offer online voting for their 2012 presidential election, and its National Electoral Institute is currently working to set guidelines for expatriates voting online that may come into effect as early as 2018. For the first time, starting in October 2015, the Gujarat state in India offered an option for online voting to 26 million eligible voters. And the chief election commissioner stated that internet voting is being considered as the next stage in order to simplify the voting process. The most widespread use of internet voting is in Estonia, 
the first country in the world offering online voting nationwide for all citizens. The first parliamentary election using internet voting in Estonia was in 2007, where 61.9% of the total electorate voted, 5.5% of which voted online. Eight years later, in Estonia's 2015 parliamentary elections, they saw 64.2% turnout, 30.5% of which voted online. While the total percentage of voters increased from 2007, it was certainly nowhere near as dramatic as the increase we saw in the case of Alabama's service people. I continued my discussion with James Simmons of Everyone Counts about how the Estonian government facilitates the online voting process with the equivalent of national smart cards. One of the things that they have, which which we are, don't just don't have the capability to, to replicate here in, in the States yet, is every citizen of Estonia is issued a essentially an ID card with a digital certificate on. So, so they've actually got a smart card, you know, basically a credit card with a chip. And their national infrastructure has that for everyone. Everyone's equipped to use it. Everyone's got the right readers on their computers. But if I steal someone's wallet and I'm in possession of that, is there, are there biometrics that, the, that you're looking to associate with that? Or is it just a picture? It's a pin. So a smart card and a pin. And you say every computer is equipped with that. I mean, there's literally a, uh, when I go to Estonia and I walk into someone's house, there's a, like a credit card. Yeah, little, one of those little dip readers. Generally speaking, I mean, as, at, a, at a high level, yeah. You know, and I'm sure that's not everyone, but they built so much of their infrastructure and their government services around that identity card that it is, it's, it's pretty pervasive throughout the country. After Estonia experienced cyber attacks in 2007 that took down government websites, bank websites, and a number of other websites important to the country's infrastructure, they cooperated with NATO to create a cyber defense center. Since then, they haven't reported any tampering with online voting and have no plans to discontinue using online voting in future elections. Switzerland was the first country to try online voting in 2003, and since then has conducted the largest number of online voting trials. One reason for this exploration is that Switzerland has been seeking to increase its voter turnout, which had been declining since the 1970s, the lowest year being 1995 with only 42.2% turnout for parliamentary elections. Geneva was the first Swiss canton or state that began exploring online voting after seeing that voting by mail, first introduced in 1995, had increased turnout by 20 percentage points. In Geneva's first two e-voting trials, they reported that an estimated 25% of those who voted online were irregular voters who would purportedly vote more if e-voting were made widely available. For the 2015 Swiss legislative elections, online voting was available to citizens abroad who had previously registered to vote in four cantons. This represented 34,000 out of 142,000 expat voters. For the 2015 federal elections, 96,000 Swiss expats, over half the total number, were eligible for e-voting. Another large provider of online voting systems is CIDL, based in Barcelona, Spain. Among their many implementations, CIDL works with Swiss cantons to facilitate Swiss expatriates voting in legislative and executive elections, in addition to yearly referendums. I spoke with Jordi Puigali, CIDL's Chief Security Officer and Senior Vice President of Research and Security, about how online voting impacts the likelihood that people vote. One of the 
main uses of online voting is related to municipal uh, elections or consultations since it's a way for having more voters participating in the voting process. In Switzerland, since they have these three or four uh, referendums, consultations or voting process per year, one of the reasons that they chose to use uh, online voting was because the easier that is for voters to vote is going to keep more percentage of voters participating in the process. If voters need to go uh, three or four times in person to a polling station, then uh, what happens is that people start to, to disenfranchise and online voting is it's allowing uh, more people to participate on voting process. We talked about the mechanics of how voting worked with CIDL, but the topic that interested me most was whether CIDL had empirical data that would refute the argument that internet voting doesn't necessarily increase voter turnout. Much to my dismay, Jordi wasn't able to help with this information. Can you give me empirical evidence that shows that more people vote when you have internet voting? No, I don't have uh, exactly empirical information on in this case. Uh, the only thing that we have is, for instance, in France, uh, the, the number of, of voters that, that when, when introduced uh, internet voting, participate in the voting process, uh, increase compared with the other channels. Or, or even in Norway, the last election, the national election that they use on online voting, even uh, the participation of the other channels uh, was lower than previous election, uh, online voting was was higher. So, so usually the preference of voters, what is clear is that, that they prefer to use online voting and when they start to use online voting, the participation of voters in these channels increase compared with the others. As it turned out, it wasn't just Jordi at Seidel who wasn't helping me make the industry case about why internet voting was so important. I also had the opportunity to interview Antonio Mugica, CEO of Smartmatic, another online voting solution company that was founded in the United States but is now based in London. When I asked him if he had substantial evidence suggesting that online voting could increase turnout, he pointed to a 2016 presidential preference caucus that his company ran for the Republican Party in Utah using Smartmatic. We had a very significant number of people that were abroad that registered to vote and um, to vote online. Not only people that were abroad, but also senior people, people that didn't want to go to the poll station. Now, from the people that registered to vote, 97% voted via internet on the Utah Republican primary. And from that 97%, from all those people that voted, more than 90% said that this is the way they want to vote and they would like to vote again exactly the same fashion. For the Utah Republican primary, almost 25,000 voters cast ballots with an average turnout of 89%. What I wanted to know was whether or not Antonio or any of the other company executives I interviewed had collected data across multiple elections that suggested an increase of voter turnout among people who had not previously voted in past elections. The answer was no, they didn't have this data available. I found it peculiar that these companies' principal sales pitches to municipalities on why they should use internet voting did not involve the promise that the absolute number of people voting would increase if such a solution were made available. So far, 
We have powerful data from Alabama arguing for the correlation between internet voting and higher turnout. But then we have inconclusive or insufficient empirical data from Estonia, Switzerland, and Utah, as well as conflicting data on whether voting by mail increases turnout, which I discussed in the last episode. It's not entirely surprising that the computer science academics I interviewed were so skeptical about whether internet voting is a worthy pursuit. Let's imagine American elections where internet voting was pervasive and we solve the risks associated with hacking, something we haven't yet really addressed, but we'll turn our attention to in the third and final episode of this series. Are we framing the analysis too narrowly simply by looking for test cases and analogs to argue in favor of increased turnout correlating with greater voter accessibility? Maybe we should be asking a different question. If internet voting were pervasive, what else in the entire voting ecosystem would change as a result? For instance, if we implemented internet voting tomorrow in America, we would likely witness massive changes in how campaigns advertise. Over the past 10 years, we have brought digital advertising and the targeting of that advertising to the level of a science in the United States. We are able to target people on the basis of age, religion, race, ethnicity, marital status, career. We can target people on the basis of their shopping behaviors, social affiliations, and so much more. Isn't it obvious that if we ever offered internet voting on a wide scale, that we would also see a wholesale reinvention of the way that we campaign and employ political advertising? Isn't it obvious that we would spend more time marketing to the groups that have historically been the most challenged to get to the polls, including disabled people, the elderly, and the working poor who have difficulties getting time off to vote? So much of online marketing is intended to drive an immediate purchase, which doesn't have an analogy when it comes to voting, simply because political advertising happens days, weeks, and months in advance of actual elections. Even in the case of voting by mail, there's no notion of a marketing campaign designed to drive votes with clicks. You could imagine that social networks would gain even more importance in the context of elections as people try to drive immediate responses from their friends. If we're going to seriously consider online voting, we need to imagine how the entirety of the political ecosystem might change as a result of its introduction. Tune in to the next episode in this series where I'll explore in greater depth some of the specific technology concerns with online voting and how a rollout of internet voting might occur in the future in the United States. If you'd like to learn more about the companies featured in this podcast, go to predictingourfuture.com to access the full list of participants and make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. This is Predicting Our Future.